Welcome to Vase, a podcast about weird stuff. I'm Peter C. Hine, and with me as always is my esteemed colleague and old friend, Stephen James Buckley. How are you doing, Buckley? I'm all right, but I'd like to point out I'm not always with him. We do live about, what, two hours apart, something like that. Is it about an hour, two hours? Yeah, he's always with me in spirit. Yeah, we do have our own lives. So anyway, let's, let's, I'll leave it to (laughs) you. How is this slow moving apocalypse that we're calling life in 2022 treating you? Um, I don't know, really. It's, it's, it's not too bad for me because I'm in a relatively lucky position of, you know, having a job that I like and stuff. But, um, when you look at the news, it's just thoroughly depressing, which is, which is kind of what base is for really, isn't it? It kind of takes our mind off it. Yeah. It's, um, it's just uh, it's so um, 2022 at the moment. I'm recovering from a bout of COVID, recovering from the 41 degree heat that we experienced earlier in this week. And like you say, you look at the news and it's even worse. Um, so but this is why we're here podcast. to talk about something else. Exactly. And what are we talking about? Well, today we're going to talk about something which is actually central to what base is which is um, the ultra-terrestrial or the paraphysical or the interdimensional hypothesis. Take your pick out of any of those. And um, so what do we mean by this? What What is the uh, ultra-terrestrial hypothesis? Well, as I understand it, I mean, it, it, it's relatively new to me. I think I'd, I'd, uh, I first encountered it probably when I read Mothman Prophecies, but that was when I, about seven or eight years ago when I wasn't really... I wanted it to be nuts and bolts, so I wasn't open to it, but now I am. And I suppose the idea is that um, that the the aliens, the UFOs, um, aren't physical things that are visiting us from space, but they are, in fact, coming from a different dimension. And they may have been here all along on Earth, but just on a different plane of existence, different quantum vibration, Um that then eventually leads into the idea that there are other things which are linked to that, which um, aren't necessarily traditionally associated with UFOs, but things like Bigfoot and fairies, etc., could also be follow the same pattern and be part of the same phenomenon. Yeah, I think that's a good explanation. Um, I haven't really heard a proper consensus as how they exist or how they move between the different worlds uh, or the different dimensions that there seems to be two basic ideas one that they exist in some kind of parallel dimension and that they're sort of capable of shifting into our dimension either magically or by technology um, or naturally Um, and then there also seems to be this other idea that they um, that we sort of inhabit this world which is limited by our own senses of perception. So I've heard it described as a sort of sphere, and within that sphere is everything that we can see, everything that we can hear, touch, taste, and smell. And the the sphere sort of indicates and symbolizes the limits of our senses. And these creatures exist beyond that sphere in their own larger sphere, which encompasses our sphere, meaning that they can sense us and they can detect us, uh, but they are beyond our perception except for occasionally when either they want to be seen um or we 
summon them in some way again, either naturally or um, by some sort of technology or by magic, you know, sort of non-scientific technology. Yeah, and I think um, it, I've heard it likened to being similar to how um, the the way uh, we see, a, say, a bird would be sort of brown or black. We'd see them with fairly limited colours, but the way birds see each other has a whole lot of new colours on it that we aren't even aware of. Um, and it's just the idea that it's on a on a separate kind of visual and physical uh, spectrum. Yeah, yeah. And this probably sounds kind of odd or, or crazy to anyone who's long believed in the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And for years and years, I was devoutly extraterrestrial hypothesis. Me you know, too. I, I, re- I rejected anything that didn't fit in with my sort of limited and narrow view of what these phenomena were. Yeah. Uh, and I rejected some of the big UFO stories, you know, things like Rendlesham, you know, which uh, start out fairly nuts and bolts and then go a bit more crazy. Yeah. Um, obviously, the Mothman, uh, which is a classic. Um, I, I just completely, I thought it was hallucinations or you know, mistaking the the idea that it was an oversized owl or a crane or something. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, um, anything that didn't fit into my view of the nuts and bolts that these were creatures coming from another planet, I just rejected outright. But embracing this hypothesis recently, this ultra terrestrial hypothesis, has really. Um, it's been quite freeing in a way because it allows me to consider a new range of possibilities. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I'm exactly the same. Like I said, the first time I read Mothman about eight years ago, I thought, ah, this is a bit silly. You know, I wasn't particularly keen on the book um, and I I kind of enjoyed it as a story, but I didn't like the sort of conclusions that he came to and the, the sort of way it was going. And it, it very much kind of went against like the same as you against my belief system. Um, and I think aside from that, you know, and I, I'd, I'd read the Red Rendlesham thing as well. And aside from that, um, I'd not really encountered it explained particularly well, uh, until earlier this year. And when I did like exactly, as you say, it, it is a kind of freeing because it, it's, it's, um, it's like a unified theory of the paranormal, isn't it? It's like, yeah, and definitely. even calling it the paranormal, Actually, when you look into the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis, it could be that it's completely normal. It's not supernatural. It's natural. It's something yeah, exactly. which is which is very natural and which has been here on this planet, if we define that as being natural, for a long time and is as much part of nature as, you know, a tortoise or a tree. Giraffe. Giraffe, well, yeah. Yeah, they're a bit weird, aren't they? Certainly when I speak about them in my strange voice recording <laughs> dreams but anyway. um and so when we talk about the nuts and bolts hypothesis just so that whistles are clear on this i don't know if this is strictly what the nuts and bolts hypothesis is but i see it as encompassing two kind of paradigms within it so one being the extraterrestrial hypothesis which we've discussed being they are creatures from another planet who've come to observe our planet or whatever and also the more terrestrial hypothesis that being government test flights, secret um, weapons, drones that are being developed, uh, unidentified flying objects in the sort of purest and most materialistic sense. There's also something called the psychosocial hypothesis, which is the idea that it's basically all in our heads and it's like almost a bit like the Jungian idea of it being like an archetype that, 
you know, sort of, I mean, I know Young kind of crosses the boundaries between, he has like a foot in both camps, doesn't he? But the, just the idea that it's all um, to do with, it's all kind of made up in people's heads. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned that because um, we can talk about this in more length later on, but I think there's a bit of a scale um, which sort of bridges both. So if you have Young at one side who, well, we, we don't really know what Young thought because he seemed to change his mind and he did seem to embrace the extraterrestrial hypothesis at one point. Often in his writing, he thought it was some sort of archetype, like you were saying. And then you get people like Hilary Evans who are more in the middle. So yes, it's an internal psychodrama, but there is a physical manifestation of that in some way through a psychic phenomenon. And then that goes all the way to it being external creatures that are somehow summoned or that people are more sensitive to. Um, and like you were saying, the idea of it being a unified theory or as close as we have to a unified theory is is, is really interesting because it embraces a lot of what we've been looking into. You know, you've got folklore, fairy lore, certain types of cryptozoology. Um, you've got magical workings. You've got spiritual beliefs like animism and um, communion with angels, religious miracles. All of that is encompassed within the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis, which is why it's so fascinating. And, and it will come up in some of the uh, people and the works that we're going to discuss in this podcast. So how are we going to talk about this today? Um, mainly through the writing of three very different individuals. So we've got Jacques Vallée, um, and the key text that we're going to look at there is Passport to Magonia. We've got John Keel, and the key text we're going to look at there is The Mothman Prophecies, which we mentioned already. And then we've got Dr. Alan Greenfield, and the key text that we're going to look at there is The Secret Cipher of the UFNauts. Okay, so for a brief background on the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis, um, the interdimensional hypothesis, none of the guys that we're going to talk about today in detail actually originated the theory itself. Um, so going back years and years and years, I mean, back to like the 17th century, you had people like John Dee and Edward Kelly who communed with angels and superior earth, unearthly beings, as they called them. Um, they, they did scrying and all that kind of thing to summon through angels or demons or spirits to themselves, which gave them the Enochian language and which Alan Greenfield actually talks about quite a lot, the Enochian language. He's, that's his sort of method of summoning, I think. Um, you got in the 18th century people like Emanuel Swedenborg, who had visions and journeyed to other planets and uh, travelled across the cosmos in his mind. Um, coming up to sort of the 19th and 20th century, you had H.B. Blavatsky 
um, who was the originator of theosophy. She was a mystic. She um, wrote about ancient wisdoms and she was involved in the spiritualist movement. Um, people didn't necessarily believe that spirits were the ghosts of dead people, or she didn't really believe that spirits were the ghosts of dead people. And she popularized the idea of there being planes, different planes of existence, and also the etheric plane and the etheric body. Um, and then that leads on to Mead Lane, who was an occultist and an early ufologist, and she was the true originator of the interdimensional hypothesis. Uh, she claimed that flying saucers were etheric ships, um, and she claimed to be in touch with the people in the saucers through telepathy. Although she did later say that she'd traveled to another planet in her mind or something and she was communicating with people there, but she's really where it starts. Um, and then we've got, we were talking earlier about um, J. Allen Hynek, who just seems like a, a cool guy. Um, and he was a debunker for the Air Force. Um, and he was involved in Project Sign, Project Grudge, Project Blue Book. Um, and uh, I had a quote from him here, which was, as a scientist, I must be mindful of the lessons of the past. All too often it has happened that matters of great value to science were overlooked because the new phenomenon did not fit with the accepted scientific outlook of the time. And that sort of is how his journey was. He went from being a skeptic and a debunker to uh, being a supporter of uh, Jacques Vallée and his idea of the um, ultra-terrestrial hypothesis and so on. Um, so then uh, you had uh, Jacques Vallée, you had John Keel, Terence McKenna thought that UFOs were manifestations of the collective human spirits. The socio-psychological hypothesis, Hilary Evans, who was a British researcher, uh, he wrote a couple of books, God Spirits, Cosmic Guardians, Encounters with Non-Human Beings, and he wrote Visions, Apparitions, and Alien Visitors. And he thought that there was a psychic component, um, but it was mainly uh, psychological. Uh, we discussed that already. Um, you have Alan Greenfield, you have Philip J. Ibrogono, um, and, uh, and someone who's come up recently, actually, uh, and we'll talk about this in more detail later, is uh, Lou Elizondo, um, who joined um, to the stars, um, which was the... Um, Tom DeLong. The, the organi- yeah, from Blink-182 and his organisation. And there's some odd stuff going on there. And then even Whitley Schreiber, um, who wrote Communion, which popularized the idea of the grey alien and the visitation and abduction. Um, he seems to have come around to the idea of the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis in, in a recent book that he wrote with Jeffrey Kripal called uh, Supernatural, New Visions of the Unexplained. I need to read um, Communion. I've not read it yet. No, I've not. I've not. I thought I had a copy, but when I checked, I actually had Contact, which is uh, a very different sort of book. That's um, the Carl Sagan one, isn't it? That's right, exactly. I've, not, yeah, I've yeah. seen the film, but not read the book of that. But the um, no. Communion, like, there's a film of that as well with uh, Christopher Walken as Whitley Strieber. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It looks mad. Uh, I watched oh, a trailer of it on YouTube and it looks like pretty insane. So I'll have to give that a go. I'll watch anything that has walking in really walking and ufos or sorry <laughs> yeah. ufos i should say ultra terrestrials yeah yeah get with the program um, buckley visitors yeah. schreiber called them he actually he actually said that he called them visitors rather than aliens because he was open to suggestion about where they came from but yeah. at the same time he's very much associated with the idea of a flying saucer and a little gray man yeah he wrote like horror books didn't he so he wrote the hunger yeah yeah um and um they actually there was this whole thing because some 
prominent newspaper removed the sequel to Communion from the nonfiction bestsellers list, claiming it was just a novel. Uh, he went mad at that. But there is that sort of, yeah, there is that doubt as to how much he was writing fiction and how much was real. And also, while, whilst we're talking about proponents of the ultra-terrestrial theory, I just wanted to give an honourable mention to Joshua Cutchin, who we're both familiar with in, yeah. in terms of listening to him on podcasts and so on. And his, his theory is ultra-terrestrial, but it's more towards cryptids, particularly Bigfoot, and how that they are actually sort of manifestations of woodland spirits and that kind of thing, yeah. which is all really interesting. He's, he's written like an entire book about fairy food. Which sounds really interesting. Yeah, I'd yeah, love, to, I'd I'd love to read that. I'd love to read it, but don't eat it. <laughs> no, no. Like, I think you'll we'll get onto that. Actually, you'll be okay reading the book, but don't go eating it, even if it is pancakes. Yeah, yeah, uh, and don't eat the book either. Um, so um, let's let's just talk about Jacques Vallée then. He originally started out as an astronomer in the sixties, uh, and then he went on to work on ARPANET, which was the precursor to the internet. And his kind of area of expertise was actually in data, uh, which I think is interesting because that actually is what shaped his um, his sort of decision to move towards the ultra terrestrial hypothesis. Um, he, I, I was listening to a, a lecture um, that he did, and he was saying that it was actually his background in data. Um, that just basically what I've just said. That's yeah. That's what that's what moved him moved him forward. It basically he, because of his of the way he, in his job, was accustomed to analysing data, and that was how he saw the world as data. He originally started out as a nuts and bolts guy, and a believer in the extraterrestrial theory. But when he started looking at the data, that was um, the data that came from sightings and from uh, contact situations um that was when he noticed that the sorts of things that were happening were exactly the same as data wise as what was happening with things like fairies and other related folklore um and i think he basically moved towards the ultra terrestrial hypothesis and also kind of brought together these disparate elements, you know, sort of previous to that UFOs were kind of seen as being quite a different thing by, by most people anyway. And I think what Valet brought to the picture was, um, a sort of almost a hard science approach to it. And also kind of combining all these disparate elements in a way that was very, um, sort of methodical. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting his background, because I think, I, I kind of think of him as a polymath, but I suppose be, he's not often referred to it that way because it was all science. But when you look at the types of science he was involved in, like you say, they they were completely disparate. You know, he went from being an astronomer to getting into computer science. Um, and then, um, he, he, like you say, he worked on the precursor to the internet and he did all this different stuff whilst also on the side investigating UFOs and, and whatnot. He was a busy guy. Yeah, he's obviously really creative, really intelligent. Yeah, as well. and when you hear him speak, I mean, the lecture I heard, it was only, I think, maybe four or five years ago. And so he must be in his 70s and he's just sharp and funny and charming. He's, he's He just seems like a great guy. I did really enjoy Passport to Magonia. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed that book as I've, well. I've got a uh, I've got a nice quote actually here from Passport to Magonia, which I feel sort of sums up um, what I've just said. So he says, beliefs identical to those held today have recurred throughout recorded history and under forms best adapted to the believer's country, race and social regime. If we take a wide sample of this historical material, we find that it is organised around one central theme, visitation by an aerial people from one or more remote legendary countries. All such places have in common one characteristic. We are unable to reach them alive, except, as we shall see, on very special occasions. And missionaries from these supernatural abodes come to earth sometimes under human form, sometimes as monsters. They, provi- they perform wonders. They serve man or fight him. They influence civilizations through mystical revelation. And that, I believe, is it in a nutshell, isn't it? He's, he's looked at, and throughout Passport to Magonia, he... He essentially has a bit of an intro, then he lists a bunch of stuff, um, things that have happened that all basically are very, very similar to what happens with UFOs. Um, they follow really similar patterns of, you know, a blinding light, um, et cetera, and, and, you know, children being taken or people being taken, there being some kind of time discrepancy and then being returned, which fits with folklore and mythology going back you know sort of centuries um probably to sort of the dawn of humanity yeah it's essentially a work of comparative folklore isn't it yeah going back like you say to millennia you know biblical stories to religious phenomena to fairy folk to the most recent form of folklore that there is which is ufo yeah, um, phenomena uh, it is fantastically interesting, and like the the quote that you were saying sums it up really nicely. And Magonia itself, because the book's called Passport to Magonia, it's from um, 1969, isn't it? And um, Magonia is because Fellay's French, isn't he? And Magonia is like a French myth of the country in the clouds. Yeah, it's basically fairyland. Yeah, a lot of his. Um a lot of his examples come from France, but he, he's done a lot of stuff in Brazil. I mean, I, I get the impression that he's basically from from that um, from that uh, lecture I listened to that he basically travels around the world visiting people who've been contacted, um, and continued to do so long after Passport to Magonia was written. Yeah, half of Passport to Magonia for anyone who hasn't read it. Well, first of all, I think we both recommend it highly. Yeah, as a book. it's amazing. Yeah, a foundational text of of this particular theory. But half the book is cases, isn't it? Just a list of cases, a catalogue, including uh, the Crowley one, the Betty and Barney Hill one. You know, all these famous sightings are, are in there, and um, it's really interesting because the book itself is also. The actual main part of the book, the first half of the book, is also basically a list of cases, um, and that that is the thing. The same with most of these books is that they um, they are just a list of cases, um, but that is what they need to be in a way because I think Valet actually says in Passport to Magonia that these things mustn't be lost; they must be remembered. Yeah. Um, these myths, so people will look back on these books when they need to do the next level of comparison, you know, with the next lot of phenomena and the way that that manifests. With however it however it manifests next. Because it, I think that one of the things that Valet um, points out is that it, it doesn't manifest itself in ways that are necessarily um, predictable or expected. I think that one of the sort of big things about the, uh, the ultra-terrestrials is that it's always um, 
slightly ahead of us in terms of technology um, yeah. in a way that I suppose if you follow the hypothesis through, um, it, it could be interpreted that they want to, if they are existing on a, on a different plane of existence or a far higher sort of type of intelligence than ours, they need to present themselves as something that we understand, but also as something out of the ordinary. And so yeah. it needs to be something slightly beyond what we're capable of. And that's why, you know, you had the airships, you know, a few hundred years ago that were just ahead of what everyone else, what people thought was possible and things like that. And that's why, you know, in a few hundred years, th- what we think of now as UFOs, th- they'll be they'll be completely different, won't they? Yeah, I, I really love the airship one as an example, because as you're going through the book, there's obviously a lot of stuff. There's some of it's medieval, and then you get onto the stuff from 17th, 18th century Europe, particularly the fairies and so on. And then suddenly, 1897, there's this rash of airship sightings. Yeah. Basically, within the space of a couple of months, you know, yeah. mainly around April. And it's all in and, America um, as well, isn't it? I think. Yeah, in Texas and places like that. Yeah. And it's absolutely fascinating because there's basically these cylindrical ships and they travel about they they they're p- partly like they're almost steampunk aren't they i was you know, just gonna say it's like a steampunk ufo but there's also they don't the, i remember in one of the cases in passport to magonia he's saying that the, the 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 person who saw it um said that it wasn't possible for it to fly given the size and and the machinery on it it sort of they couldn't work out how it was able to fly because yeah and, and weirdly that the, the the people who who are flying these airships give explanations as to how their machines are working which isn't possible a lot of like it works on compressed air yeah and that sort of thing it's something that we'd sort of understand what the term meant but can't work out how that would make it fly and which which again fits with the whole idea of they're just ahead of our technology but not uh, you know but actually when you look into it it's absurd it also has the thing that the inhabitants of these airships or the people who are piloting them look almost human. Yeah. Yeah. But just a little bit different. Yeah. Sometimes they're dwarves or sometimes yeah. they have like very, very, very dark skin or sometimes hairy. they're sort of hairy, very whiskery, a lot of them. Yeah. And then you get something which occurs, which is that they look a bit sort of East Asian yeah. or Italian, some of them, which is like with the men in black, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's that whole idea of an other, isn't it? Like if, exactly. If they were, if they appeared in East Asia, they probably wouldn't look East Asian. No, I think I think that's a really important point. Is that a lot of these, I think, are either actually looked other because that's the way they were manifesting, or they looked different, and so the people who were living in you know, the late nineteenth century yeah. in America had never travelled very much. Perhaps that was the and, closest and they could. Yeah, exactly, well. exactly. Which which is which is interesting because that's something that's very very common in Men in Black sightings. Is this idea of them looking slightly other um but yeah so, so that that's great the other good thing i wanted to mention before we get stuck into the meat of this is that if you can get a copy of passport to magonia from i think 2014 onwards it's got that incredible art on the front oh yeah with the is, masks with the alien yeah. and the fairy and stuff yeah that looks great and that's um by chris butler and um i'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes so you can see it because valet was actually quoted as saying that the the best part of the re-release is 
of, of that book, which is probably the cover. And that's not just a flippant point. No, it is cool. It, it looks it, absolutely beautiful. So what, what do you feel from reading this? Valet actually believed. I think he, he, he does the sort of quite wise, uh, he has the quite wise approach of not necessarily saying, I believe this, but saying it appears that this is the case. So he's not, I don't think he's, he's necessarily, um, strictly kind of, uh, in a kind of dogmatic way saying this is it, which is, which is one of the things that really appeals to me about Valet is that he seems to be, he's very non-dogmatic. He's very kind of, um, his approach is, is one which, um, leaves it open to, to having his mind changed, which I think is, is why of all of the, um, certainly out of a lot of the, the people that we've looked at, not just for this episode, but throughout, you know, the, the things I've read, uh, in the past few months, I feel like Valet's one of my faves because he, I just really like his approach of not being, um, so stubborn about it and just sort of he looks at things he says he presents an idea of of what could be but i don't think he necessarily is not open to the idea of having his mind changed yeah i think that's right and i think that he is he's also he goes further i think than being non-dogmatic i think he's kind of anti-dogmatic isn't he for a scientist he's very anti-authority anti-scientific mainstream i think that in one of the quotes from Magonia, he says, modern science rules over a narrow universe, one particular variation of an infinite theme, which really kind of sums it up, you know, yeah. as if modern science has latched onto one particular track and won't come off it. And he's obviously more creative than that. And he's coming up with lots of different ideas. He also said that about ufology and psychology. He said something like, uh, I've got a quote, ufology like psychology has become such a narrow field of specialization. The experts have no time left for general culture. They're so busy rationalizing the dreams of other people that they themselves do not dream anymore, nor do they read fairy tales. Yeah. He's, um, he's a top guy. I, I particularly like his, um, because he, he talks quite a bit about the um, something that we've not properly discussed is the the more kind of absurd element of all of this. Yeah, there's some really weird stuff there's in that. There's some book. really weird stuff. I mean, is, is the pancakes guy in that book? I think he is. Yeah. So so there was a chicken farmer from Wisconsin. Yeah. And uh, it was just in the morning. It was it wasn't even a nighttime visitation. It was just the middle of the morning. He heard a sound outside. He went outside, and there was this floating silver saucer shaped object, and it had like three men inside clean shaven <laughs> looked like Italians yeah like they, they, so in that case it's got that food element that we talked a bit about earlier yeah so they gave him a jug they asked for water which is quite common in fairy tales as well isn't yeah, it? That yeah there'll be some sort of quid pro quo there's always uh, a, often, there's always an exchange yeah and and water is a common one pure water is is something that they often seem to want and then there's also the idea that often they kind of claim that they're doing some kind of survey or doing some kind yeah. of, and, and, um, I think that's one of the other things that Valet points out in, in sort of, um, criticism of the extraterrestrial theory, the nuts and bolts theory is that the way that these guys behave is not in line with an advanced race doing a survey of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's just so weird. So he goes out to get them the water and when he comes back, he can smell cooking. So he looks inside their spaceship 
and they're frying food on a flameless grill. And so he makes a motion to them. And I don't know what he's yeah, thinking at this point. he rubs his belly and goes, mmm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Because basically he makes a motion saying, I want some of what you've got. And, and so they gave him three, I think it was, three like cookies or pancakes. Like, yeah. They, they, they seem to use the term interchangeably. Um, and then they just fly off. Yeah. And so he's left with these pancakes. And so like being obviously a bold guy, he eats one of them. Um, he says it tastes like cardboard. Um, and then he gives the other one to the US Department of Health, Education <laughs> and Welfare. And the other thing is, like you were saying, the technology seems to be just slightly ahead of where everyone is because it sounds like an induction oven, doesn't it? You know, or something like that. You know, some sort of grill that you you don't need to sort of have flames for, you know, which obviously he'd never seen before, but it was just right around the corner uh, from when this sighting was. Um, but even if he was making this up, why would he give a pancake to the US Department of Health, Education and Welfare? <laughs> because w- then when they analysed it, they said it was just terrest- of terrestrial origin. So he, if he was going to fake this, he'd obviously know that he'd just made a pancake and he wasn't going to trick anyone. Yeah. That's, that's what's so weird about it. I can't help but wonder what's happened to that pancake. <laughs> like is it still in a museum somewhere has it been cryogenically frozen but they i think like one of the um another thing that valet mentions is that like one of the criticisms of um kind of a lot of a lot of people who are kind of debunking ufos but you know this is outside of the ultra terrestrial slash nuts and bolts argument is that the behavior of these um entities we'll call them, or UFOs or aliens, whatever, that come into contact with people is so absurd and makes no sense. And so it can't be, uh, it can't be in line with what a, a superior intelligent race who have light speed travel would do. You know, why would they ask for a jug of water and then give a guy pancakes? Like, but I think Valet argues that actually it is, um, it is the, the reason it's so absurd is because we don't understand it. And I think he compares it to, um, I think it's something like a Picasso sculpture. Um, you know, if birds are perching on a Picasso sculpture, they wouldn't know it was a Picasso sculpture. And they wouldn't know it was this like wonderful piece of art that was kind of, you know, venerated throughout human culture. They just think, oh, it's a bit of a weird thing. They wouldn't really. And the, the birds don't understand the sculpture, do they? And in the same way, we don't understand what these dudes are doing. Like we, it might seem absurd to us. I mean, when cats, you've seen how cats look at you when you do stuff. Like they're looking at yeah. you thinking, why is he doing that? Like, like, okay, so here's a great example that I've just thought of. This doesn't come from Valet. Um, when you're walking a dog and when you're walking Cooper and... Cooper does a shit and then you pick it up in a little bag and take it home with you. Like you've been following me. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> but like Cooper probably thinks, what the fuck is he doing? Why is my master doing this? Like what a weird thing to do. Uh, and it's the same thing, isn't it? It's like, we're, we're, we don't understand what they're doing. And that's, that I think is a, is a, um, is a pretty good argument for it really. Yeah, and this is exactly the kind of case that I would have immediately dismissed when I was strictly on the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Me too. The now thing, I love it. It's like my. It's one of my top. Yeah, five. It's the Eagle River case is called. But what's interesting about this and, and the context which it's placed within in Passport to Magonia is that if you go back through the story, 
with the idea of it being like a fairy sighting, it makes perfect sense. So, yeah, first of all, this thing appears in the middle of the day. He goes and have a look. There's three guys there who look a bit weird, a bit different. You know, he yeah. calls them Italians, but again, that could just be his idea of someone with slightly different colored skin, maybe some, some exotic to him or foreign to him in some way. Yeah. They ask for water, which again, that happens a lot in fairy tales. Well, I don't mean fairy tales like Brothers Grimm. I mean, folklore, yeah. fairy stories. They ask for pure water. And then there's the exchange, like you say, they give them food. And then the interesting thing is that often with fairy stories, the gift that they give them becomes something ordinary. So th- so they'll give them coal, uh, gold or something that yeah. will then become coal when, uh, when it, they show it to someone else or something like that. So something which is mystical, which is whatever food they gave to him, uh, it becomes a pancake of terrestrial origin made of buckwheat or whatever. And food is also obviously really important in these fairy stories as you mentioned about kutchen so there's that famous saying which i think is recounted in passport to magonia which is once they take you and um you taste their food in their palace you cannot come back yeah and that's which is why you shouldn't eat food but that reminds me of that story i was telling you the other day about once when i was walking through leeds and um, I was a little bit worse for wear. This is about 20 years ago. I was walking with a friend. We'd been out drinking all night and we were going on to another friend's house. And as we were walking, I had stomach ache and I was just saying like, I just want milk. I just want milk. I just really want milk. And my friend, who's your friend as well, Holmes, Holmes was saying like, just shut up about the milk. Like <laughs> you're going on about the milk constantly. And it became a bit of a joke that I was just talking about milk. I was going on about milk and, you know, milk this and milk that. And then suddenly this is about two o'clock uh, in the morning, a bicycle drove past us and dropped a pint of milk in a carton on the pavement just next to where I was standing. Amazing. Was the, was the, uh, was the cyclist a bit Italian looking? I think he was Italian. He had whiskers. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't remember. But then um, I didn't drink the milk. I was too scared. And now after, after reading into this folklore, I'm glad that I didn't because that that is not yeah. something. You know, I don't think we'd be here. To, something I don't think do. you'd be here today if not drinking that weird fairy milk. Drunk no, fairy milk. No, no. So basically, like, how far do you think Jacques Vallée and his research went? Like, and and what does it sort of mean to you? I think he he's obviously done very extensive research. He seems to be kind of more into the collection of the data rather than actually coming up with um I think when you compare it to Keel sort of Keel actually as well as collecting data actually imposes a hypothesis on it which is a strict you know this is what I believe um because I've been reading the 8th tower but I've read the 8th tower by John Keel and in that he very much um lays out his theory of the, what, what he calls the super spectrum, which we'll get onto soon. And um, whereas Valet just seems to be a bit more chill and a bit more kind of, this is what's happening. This is what it isn't. This is what it. I think it could be. But I'm not sure. And I like that. Yeah, it's like you say, he's very much a data guy, isn't he? And rather than saying what it definitely is, he goes to lengths to say what it isn't. And um, although it's sort of disparate throughout Passport to Magonia, his 
you know, his desire to disprove the extraterrestrial hypothesis. He wrote in 1990 a paper called Five Arguments Against the Extraterrestrial Origin of Unidentified Flying Objects. I've got it right here. We we both did the same notes. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, so, he, well, well, basically, he comes up with three arguments, no, five arguments against it, doesn't he? Like, like the title suggests, you can find this online. Um, the whole paper is there as a PDF, isn't it? Um, so there's the uh, close encounter frequency is his first argument. It happens far too much for it to be a survey of the Earth. Like if they were an advanced race, they would have finished surveying the Earth thousands of years ago. Yeah. I mean, Google Maps have done it in however yeah. many years. So if, if they're more advanced than Google, then you know, you'd think they would have done it. Then, then you've got uh, argument number two, which is their physiology, which they're just so often humanoid. I mean, they're Italians yeah. or, or they're uh, whiskered gentlemen uh, coming out of these airships. Little hairy men. Yeah, the gentry. It's like if you if you are, if you do believe in the theory of evolution, like things on other planets are not going to evolve to look the same way that we do. Like it's a really, 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 really unique set of circumstances that has made, you know, the humanoid structure. Exactly. Then the third, the third argument is the abduction reports and just, just what we've been talking about really, just the weird behavior of these aliens when they do make contact with people. Yeah. It's not what an advanced race would do. No. I mean, why would they, if you take something like, the scars that people have after an abduction or something. There's all sorts of probes, blood samples, biopsies that modern medicine can do throughout the 20th century and the 21st century without leaving these scars and marks. If these beings are so advanced, why would they be making such a hash of all this yeah. scientific testing? It's almost like they're trying to sort of fool us, but not necessarily, like it doesn't, it, 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 on a surface level, it works, but when you kind of hold it up to the light, it's like, hang on a minute, these guys are meant to be super advanced. Like, why are they bothering doing this? Exactly. And plus, like, why are they going to all that effort? You know, if you want blood or or something like that, so I've heard, you can just go to a blood bank. You know, why aren't they raiding blood banks? Why aren't they going to sperm banks? Why 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 are they going to the trouble of taking these people to these weird laboratories and probing them and so on? It just seems like nonsense. Yeah. Um, then uh, argument number four is just history. The extent to which this phenomenon has happened as, as passport to Magonia documents. And then you've got your argument number five, which is your physical considerations. You know, they, they can break the laws of physics. They can materialize, dematerialize. They can manipulate time. You know, all the yeah. lost time and stuff like in Betty and Barney Hill and so Very on. Very much like fairies can. Exactly. But then if they are just extraterrestrials, it, it seems, I suppose, that the different technology than what you would use, perhaps, to travel between planets. You know, it seems it seems that it hints at something different. And I think, especially as our technology gets better, it's like um, we now, in twenty twenty two, know what advanced technology compared with the fifties looks like. We know what what technology uh, seventy years ahead of nineteen fifty two or whatever looks like, and we know that the technology that the UFOs had back then was crap. Yeah, it, it yeah. was like 1960s or 1970s looking, wasn't Trying it? Trying to impress us with their flameless grill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And sort of um, not today. And it's also very unlikely that a race would just be 10 years ahead of us. 
yeah. rather than like a million or 20,000 or 6 billion or something like that. Just, just 20 years, you know. But that's what's interesting because in that paper, Valet actually goes a bit further than Magonia and suggests a few hypotheses, although he doesn't really take credit for any of them. Um, first of all, he, he suggests that perhaps they are some sort of control system. So based, maybe perhaps some sort of alien entities which are Earth-based, uh, like some sort of Earth-based intelligence, which are exhibiting a new form of behavior, perhaps like the Gaia theory, you know, that, that because we are damaging the planet in some way, yeah. that suddenly these creatures have woken up and started to push back effectively. Um, and Or perhaps he's going for a more Jungian interpretation, or like Hilary Evans, who we discussed earlier, which is the psychosocial theory, um, and also the, um, the Terence McKenna idea that this is a collective human consciousness and, and that we're projecting ahead um, imagery that is necessary for us for our long-term survival um, based on our current terrible crises that we're having <laughs> on earth you know so perhaps the, the the fact that they are always 10 years ahead like you were just saying is pushing us saying yeah this is what you need to do this is where you need to go this is where your technology needs to be because say for example the airships which is one of my favorites like we've discussed earlier that was maybe five or ten years ahead of the Zeppelin being invented. And that is what the description of them was, basically, using gases in, in cigar-shaped yeah. vehicles. Um, and then, you know, just slightly after the Zeppelin, you had actual motorized flight, uh, heavier than, than air flight, you know, the, the Wright brothers and so on. So they, they, were, they were always just that little bit behind. Um, he also mentions a theory of abduction experiences, um, which is perhaps some sort of psychic functioning of a person's perception where they can actually, in certain circumstances, affect the world around them and manifest something that other people can see. Yeah. Um, and then finally, he said that there, there could be an extra extraterrestrial hypothesis that these are visitors to Earth and they're using like radical methods of space-time manipulation, perhaps wormholes or whatever, to get here. And that would explain perhaps the impression that these beings are coming from another dimension. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the interesting things that Valet talked about in that um, lecture was an example he gave, um, I think it was from Brazil, of a, uh, a woman who photographed a UFO that was on a, hovering over a lake and she took a series of photos i think she took three um and it showed up on uh it showed up on one of them but not the other two like it was sometimes there and it sometimes wasn't yeah it's weird yeah i think that it, it, it uh, what what i'm getting at with that and what he was trying to say in this lecture was that the phenomenon seems to change or adapt to evade detection or to evade there being proof of it, uh, you know, which is, it, it, I know there's a lot of arguments saying that, you know, we don't see UFOs anymore because we've all got phones. We've all got, you know, pho camera phones. Um, and that camera. But that's actually completely not true, is it? No. Because there are actually, the, the sightings have increased yeah. in line with what you would expect with everyone having cameras in that every day there's a new video online of people who've taken photos with their phone or whatever there is but none of them are as convincing as you would expect if you compare That's it true. to the pictures people get now of i don't know like wild animals and stuff which are far better than people would get um you know in in 100 years ago or even 30 years ago um we can get in very close we can take pictures very easily we don't have to wait 
for something to load or something to set up. We can just literally pull this device out of our pocket and click it a few times and there you go, it's done. And yet there's still no amazing pictures of UFOs. Um, and I think- Again, they may not be evading detection as much as they're exhibiting behavior, which appears to evade detection. Like yeah. you were saying about the Picasso statue, maybe the weird way they phase in and out and so on is some other function of something that they're doing that we don't really understand. Yeah, like they're, or they're basically, they exist on a different spectrum. Or it could also be, if we're um, looking at the comparison with fairies, a kind of trickster element as well. Because I think that yeah. seems to come into it a lot when you look at, um, particularly again, once we get onto Keel, like they seem to fuck with him, didn't they? Yeah, definitely. And just before we move on to Keel, there's something interesting about Passport to Magonia. Even though he doesn't suggest hypotheses as such, he hints heavily at various possible ways in which these creatures or entities could exist. And one thing he comes back to over and over again is magic and the occult. And um, he goes through uh, Robert Kirk's book, The Secret Commonwealth, which is a collection of yeah. stories about fairies uh, from, um, um, was that sort of 17th century, perhaps? I'm, I'm not sure. But um, he summarizes it in 16 points. And the 16th and final point is, when he's talking about his entities, that they can be made to appear at will before us by using magic. And here he mentions in particular two people. One is, uh, and I'm going to say this wrong, um, Fazio Cardano. Um, firstly, he, he's, he was an odd guy. He was a mathematician, and his son, um, Jerome Cardano, was also a prominent mathematician. They were both very smart guys. Um, but Fazio Cardano had seemed to be constantly in touch with spirits and entities he had a familiar spirit which he would talk to constantly followed him around and he had some pretty extreme experiences with entities one particular one which his son documented was that seven men just materialized in his kitchen one day wearing togas and shiny shoes and when he asked them who they were they said that they were made of air and so he proceeded to ask them a few questions he asked them about the nature of the universe um, what Jerome Cardano says was that the tallest of them denied that God had made the world from eternity. On the contrary, the other added that God created it from moment to moment, so that should he desist for an instant, the world would perish. Which is pretty fucking interesting when you take into account something like chaos theory, which, you know, from my limited understanding of chaos theory, you know, you're moving into things there that I don't really understand, but you, things like the uncertainty principle, the observational theory, um, theory and, and basically the, the, the you're moving away from the classical theory of causality, you know, and yeah. that the, um, and, and I mean, this is 1491. Yeah, it's pretty, ad- pretty advanced shit for then, isn't it? Exactly, yeah, it's pretty mind-blowing. And then he also mentions, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong as well, but uh, Paracelsus, or Paracelsus, um, who was uh, a physician from the 16th century. And he, again, was a really intelligent guy, you know, who who sort of was part of the medical revolution of the uh, Renaissance. And um, he he basically had all this theory about uh, these sort of, he called them elementals that were sort of creatures and spirits, uh, which were generally invisible to mankind, but they had sort of classically humanoid bodies. And he wrote 
that a pact could be made with these creatures so that they could be made to appear at will to answer questions. Um, but he didn't go so far as to say exactly how to make this pact uh, because he said that you know, to do so might cause ills um, upon those who would try it. So he's basically saying, yeah, you can summon these things. And these are mentioned in Passport to Magonia. So obviously he'd considered, Valade obviously considered that there was some connection there. To magic, yeah, which to magic, I'm sure yeah. we'll, we'll look at later on with uh, with old Crowley, dirty old yeah. Crowley. And uh, Dr. Greenfield himself as well is, is on that He's dabbled. On, on that side of things, isn't he? Yeah. Moving back to John Keel. Moving back, who we've discussed quite a lot. Moving back, moving forward. Moving on. Well, it doesn't time moving on. time isn't linear? Exactly. So <laughs> we're uh, we're moving towards John Keel. Um, hey, so John Keel, whereas Valet was a scientist, uh, Keel was a journalist. Um, he was born around the same time as Valet. So I think Valet was born in twenty nine, and Keel was nineteen thirty. So the twentieth century boys, twentieth century boys. Um, Unlike Keel, who unlike Valet, sorry, who was a constant academic, Keel actually left school at sixteen. Uh, he joined the army and um, he travelled, um, and he became a, a foreign correspondent on the radio. Um, so he, he visited Egypt, in India. Um, he, he he had an interest in magic, as in magic tricks, when he was younger. So he started to look into things like the Indian rope trick and that kind of thing. And that led him to look into mysticism. Um, and as, as he developed as a journalist, he started to contribute to various Fortean publications. Um, and then he became a full-time researcher. So he also wrote, he, he did write novels. So he wrote some sci-fi, but he's mainly known for his excellent and, and quite important books. You, know, you mentioned the eighth tower. Yeah. That's the, that's the one I read, uh, a few weeks ago. Then there's Operation Trojan Horse, which I'm reading at the moment. Um, and then the one that's the absolute classic of the genre, which I'd recommend that people read, uh, anyone who's listening to this with even a passing interest, is The Mothman Prophecies. Because as well as being a list of weird stuff that happened at a particular time in you know the late 60s, it's also actually a really, really good book. It's a good story, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the fact that they made it into a film, it's not the greatest film, but, um, you know, someone's obviously read that and thought, there's a story in here. Definitely, definitely. And and it, it reads like an exciting novel, which is something actually that we can talk about a bit later on. But there's also, I'd recommend a really good episode of the Weird Studies podcast, which they talk about a lot more than I think that we will, about the plot and how it's put together and the various things that yeah, it's great. occur within it. But, but basically, to, to sort of summarise it very quickly, is that um, it was released in 1975, but it's about something that happened in 1967, which is um, a, a weird flap, a UFO flap, all this unexplained supernatural phenomenon, all centred around Point Pleasant in West Virginia. Um, he uses it, all of this phenomenon, as a way to discuss his theories about ultra-terrestrials and the paraphysical side of ufos and it culminates in a bridge collapse which is predicted by people's dreams and things that they see 
um, during some of the encounters that he recounts in, in this book. So Keel actually, I think, originated, as far as I can tell, the words ultraterrestrial hypothesis. I think that was his invention. I think so, yeah. He certainly came up with the super spectrum. And uh, what's the super spectrum? So the sp- super spectrum is his idea that... Um, he sort of starts out by looking at kind of um, the spectrum of light and the spectrum of sound uh, and the spectrum of magnetism and electromagnetism and how there's basically things which are not visible to us or not audible to us. Um, they're either a very low frequency or a very high frequency. They're outside of our range. Um, and much in the same way that there are frequencies that only bats can hear or dogs and cats can hear that we can't, um, that it, it comes up with the... I think excellent theory that that these things could exist on a spectrum um, outside of what we usually experience, um, whether that is light, sound, or a number of other things. I mean, there's there's all sorts of um, light and heat uh, and sound based phenomenon that goes along with particularly UFO sightings. Um, I mean, Keel, I don't think talks a lot about things like fairies or Bigfoot, does he? He's very much kind of... He, he mentions them, but more in passing. Yeah, um, yeah. He doesn't really kind of make the comparison as much as Valet does, but certainly kind of um, he he sort of comes up with um, this idea that, you know, like I was saying before, how birds see each other with these almost fluorescent colours, even the ones that we see as uh, relatively dull. And... Um, he he says that this kind of explains the uh, the bright lights, the colours, um, and the physical symptoms of blindness or nausea, uh, and also the occasional healing element that can come along with these uh, contact or UFO incidents. Um, he explains that 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 is the sign that they exist on a spectrum outside of of what we can normally experience, and it's it's pretty convincing to be honest. I mean, uh, he uses. Uh, the there's the whole uh, the miracle of Fatima uh, where yeah. there was all them people who got healed by this and there was this light and you know it got sort of explained as being like a religious thing but really if you boil it down it's all the same principles of lights in the sky and bright colours and weird shit happening um, and then there's, he also uses the the classic example of the Ark of the Covenant um, which was built the the way it was actually built supposedly was very similar to early transistors, which is essentially a wooden box with it's overlaid with gold or silver. Um, and one of the first messages that actually came from the ark, apparently, I've not read the Bible, but you know, someone who why has not? can why not? <laughs> yeah, that's next <laughs> next episode. Um, get it on audiobook, get it from Audible. But apparently, the the one of the first messages that came from the ark was was to tell people how to deal with. Uh, these symptoms of um, what they thought then was um, was like a, a plague, you know, where it was like your skin was all boiling and bubbling and you were you were sick and stuff like that. And actually, it sounds very much like radiation sickness. Uh, so, you know, it, it, he puts out the theory that the Ark of the Covenant was in fact some kind of communication device. Uh, I know there's all these, I, I've heard, uh, I don't remember where I read it now, but it's something to do with like the Ark, um, you know, told people 
to they made like a certain kind of armor or they, they had some kind of device in their armor that they used to break down these walls in some battle and it was like emanating a sound and that sounds like some kind of sonic supersonic weapon or subsonic weapon oh, and stuff nice. like that i've not heard that before um yeah. I think, do you know, I think it was actually on the, I'm showing my culture here. I think it was actually on the Weird Studies episode about Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Ah, okay. So I'll link to that in the show notes. Then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he, 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 that's the whole idea of the super spectrum explained in a way. Yeah. So, I mean, Keel was obviously another very intelligent, very creative guy. He was much more fast and loose with his theories than Ballet. And I think that's probably because he wasn't strictly a man of science. Yeah. I think the Ballet was showed a lot of caution, didn't he? And a lot of restraint. Yeah. Whereas Keel, he's chucking theories out left, right and center. I mean, and it, it's fantastic to read, but I think sometimes you do have to take it with a pinch of salt. Um, even, I mean, we're talking, we're centering on the Mothman prophecies here, because I think that if you were going to start somewhere with Keel, um, that would be a good place to start because it, it's entertaining. It's fairly short. It's a really banging good read. You know, you can't put it down when you start it. But also, I mean, there's, you've, you've been the Eighth Tower and, and I've been reading yeah. Operation Trojan Horse and they discuss similar things, um, a lot of them. Um, and and uh, and a lot of them are progressions of the same theories. Yeah, I mean, with, with Mothman, you do have to um, kind of try and ignore the casual sexism uh in there it's very of its time isn't it yeah there is actually I, I forgot to mention it but when you asked me to explain the super spectrum i do actually have a, a great quote from our boy keel um which when i read it i remember reading it and thinking wow this is this is great this is a really good explanation of it so i'm gonna read it it's quite long so we might want to edit this out but let's see how it goes so this is john keel explaining in the eighth tower written in 1975 the superspectrum. The easiest analogy to this phenomenon is to compare the superspectrum to a boy with a microscope. When he peers at the drop of water on a slide, he is, in a sense, looking into another world quite separate to his own reality. In 30 seconds of his time, he can watch the entire life cycle of a microbe, its birth, its multiplying, and its death. Because of its very small size, if the microbe had a sense of time, those 30 seconds would be like 30 of our years. Time, as Einstein observed, is not a real measurement, but it's relative. The microbe swimming about in his drop of water knows nothing about the universe outside of his immediate environment, and the boy exists in a whole different dimension. Our young scientist can see an obstacle in the path of the microbe long before the latter is aware of it. Thus, the boy is able to project the future of the microbe to a degree. By inserting the point of a needle into the water, the boy can manipulate the microbe. If it could see, the microbe would regard the needle as an inexplicable object that mysteriously appears and disappears. It would have no frame of reference for such an object, so it would have to speculate and theorise and invent an explanation. If you told the microbe the truth, that a whole world existed in a much larger dimension, and that the phantom object was just a needle wielded by a child, the microbe would laugh in your face. Everyone knows, it would explain patiently, that the whole universe is liquid. Which I think is fucking great. It's a really cool yeah, analogy. Cool I do like I do like the idea of the the microbe laughing in in your face yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's I think that's one of the reasons why Keel's so good, isn't it? Because he is like a good writer. He is like a uh, a good storyteller, and the fact that he's done that in a nice, fairly concise chunk is a really great way of explaining to people 
Uh, yeah, he's brilliant. You can tell he's a novelist because he's brilliant with metaphors. Yeah, and that kind of thing, like and and explaining complicated things in a relatively simple way, which is why Keel is actually a really good place to start with the whole ultra-terrestrial hypothesis. Really, yeah. Um, it's just you do have to watch, and, and we'll, we'll talk about this a bit in a moment. You have to take some of it with a grain of salt, don't you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he he does. Um... I think kind of towards the end of the eighth tower, he loses me a bit. I must say, he, he sort of comes to a conclusion that it's some form of super mind running the universe that's beyond our comprehension. And then he sort of, um, I think he quotes uh, Charles Fort saying, "We are property," and he kind of gets quite paranoid. And I mean, I can I can kind of see where he's coming from, given everything that happened to him in in Mothman prophecies, where you know, they were essentially fucking with him. I mean, he was getting like, he was getting all these like weird phone calls and threats. And I know sort of the, the whole issue with the, um, with the bridge collapse, what happened, there was, there was a, um, there was a number of different predictions, which the, these entities made throughout, you know, the, the, the contact that he investigated. And, um, I think one of them was that the Pope would be, um, assassinated by a man in black in the middle east one of them yeah. was that um robert kennedy should watch himself in hotel kitchens and one of them was that uh, um i don't remember the exact date it was uh it was some point in december a date in december let's call it the 4th of december on the 4th of december at midday the entire us power grid will uh will drop out and out of those predictions, just using those three examples, uh, they, um, the Pope wasn't assassinated, but exactly a year later, a man in black attempted to assassinate him, not in the Middle East, but in the Far East. Uh, but still, you know, it's kind of close. Uh, Robert Kennedy was killed, assassinated in a hotel kitchen. Uh, and at that exact time, midday, on the 4th of December or whatever day it was, uh, the power grid didn't go out at all, but a bridge collapsed, killing nearly a hundred people. So I think yeah. that's like that essentially that basically leads Keel to a point where he's like, fuck this, these things, whatever they are, are fucking with me and they are spiteful and they are malicious and they are scheming and manipulative. And he just was done with it. Wasn't he? Yeah, so what you've been talking about there um, really brings me on nicely to a few of my observations from reading the Mothman prophecies. So one of the reasons it makes such a good story and they were able to make a film out of it 
I mean, you couldn't make a film out of Passport to Magonia or The Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts. But the difference here is that Keel is very much the protagonist, the protagonist of the Mothman prophecies, isn't he? You know, he puts himself up front and centre. Yeah. That's a big difference between him and, say, Valet. Is It seems that he was constantly experiencing this phenomena. Constantly, you know, he was always seeing UFOs, you know, not just once or twice. I think that Valet did see UFOs, a teenager. Yeah, when he was, when he was really young, he did. Yeah, but Keel was just seeing them left, right and centre. You know, he, the Mothman prophecies itself is just full of observations of him watching UFOs, lights in the sky. Uh, Operation Trojan Horses too. It was like he'd been targeted, wasn't it? He was like he was being... Yeah, well, that's the other thing. He's also, there's heavy paranoia in that book. He writes a lot about burnout. He writes about losing his mind. He writes about hoaxes, people hoaxing him and, and people fucking with him as well. Um, he has some weird beliefs um, because he puts himself at the centre of all this. A lot of it is, is very, very subjective. So he reckons that a third of people, including him, are sensitive to the phenomenon. Okay, so... I don't know where he plucks that figure from. <laughs> no, um, classic or, or white. <laughs> yeah. But so so he, he thinks that he has this ability, this sensitivity to be able to see all this stuff. Then there's the weird thing that the entities that are in contact with him and a few of his witnesses, they use names from his own sci-fi novels to talk to him. Um, they They adopt weird names as well. Weird names, so... They, one of them is called Apple, spelt A-P-O-L. Uh, one of them is spelt Liar, spelt L-I-A. But of course, Apple being, you know, temptation, deceit, the forbidden fruit, the forbidden yeah. knowledge. Uh, liar being just the word liar, someone who lies. Yeah. You know, there's, there's very odd things that's happening in, in his mind there. Um, he hypnotizes a witness and speaks directly to Apple at one point. So that's, I mean, that to me seems like a medium, you know, he's performing some sort of like low level magic there, or he appears to be. His phone rings throughout, doesn't it? Yeah, he's he's, always getting these weird calls. Yeah, yeah, constantly. And and often there's no one there. Often it's crank calls. Um, Like you say, he he makes weird predictions. He predicted air crashes that came true. And he doesn't give any details of them. He just says, I predicted some air crashes that came true. You'd think that you'd put that up front and center if you were writing a book about Weird phenomenon. Val Haywood. <laughs> yeah, Haywood. Um, so he's not just merely an impartial observer. This is all happening to him. Uh, like you say, there's the Pope thing. There's Kennedy. Um, he predicts Martin Luther King's assassination. Um, he doesn't mention any premonitions that don't come true. So whether he was just <laughs> yeah. constantly speculating. But pure luck. It, it, he was definitely tapping into something, wasn't he? I mean, was his whole life a synchronicity storm? You know, like the thing that the, the hell you guys are, are, you know, when it seems that you lose objectivity a bit and everything becomes subjective. Yeah, it's what, um, I've just finished reading uh, uh, Cosmic Trigger Part 1 by Robert Anton Wilson and he uses the term Chapel Perilous uh, to describe um, that situation, which, which is something that he went through. And then he refers to uh, he refers to Keel and the Mothman prophecies in a in a chapter, and um, Helia is almost like the next step along from that. And you know who explains this really eloquently is um, Nathan Paul Isaac, 
from Pennyroyal. Uh, and we will talk more uh, about Hellier and Pennyroyal in, in upcoming episodes. I think we're going to do a, an episode about specifically about those two things because the, uh, to go into it briefly, what um, Nathan suggests is that there's some sort of feedback loop going on, basically. So the more you look at it, the more it looks back at you. And that's the second order cybernetics thing. But that's all really interesting stuff that we won't spoil now by meddling in. But going back to Kiel, I, like, I hate to, and I'm reluctant to go down the route of talking about mental illness here, but this this seems to be a slight feel of him losing his grip a little bit in, in Mothman Prophecies. And sometimes you wonder if he's not aware of it because he starts the book by talking about one of his friends who's experiencing burnout yeah. from the same thing. And that comes back to haunt him over and over again. He's very, very paranoid. Um, he, so he's talking to entities... Fair enough, you know, I mean, I, I believe that people can do that, but it's happening to him very, very often. They're calling him on the phone and stuff, which seems seems slightly unusual. There's phrases in there that, that seem like the, the words of, of someone who's experiencing intense paranoia. Things like, the, he says, the entities adopted a system of code names, giving each contactee a biblical name. I was the only one who knew which name applied to which contactee. Yeah, you know, like he's got this specific knowledge, which is yeah. special to him. I mean, yeah. there's, 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 at the end of the Eighth Tower, I, I was saying before, it loses me a bit. And he he's talks about the, the actual Eighth Tower that he's talking about. He suggests that it's a, a giant computer that controls us all via radiation. Uh, and, you yeah. know, by, like I say, by the end of the book, I'm just like, John, come on. Um, and he's he's talking about how I think he says uh, that he suggests that it's just like this computer that's breaking down and kind of I think he describes it as senile and it's just like at the end of its life and it's kind of fucking with everyone and lashing out almost a bit like Tony Soprano's mother. <laughs> yeah. That kind of I never looked at it that way. Yeah, well, neither did Kale because the Sopranos didn't exist then but yeah you get i'm just throwing in a pop culture reference just to just to brighten the mood <laughs> so he, yeah i mean any of these things that he talks about in mothman prophecies i believe could be observed without any sort of component of uh, paranoia or mental illness but he's obviously aware of it uh, again i don't know how much he was self-aware but he, he this phrase is like after one of the crank calls, he says, as I replaced the receiver, I thought to myself, they're doing it. They're turning this old boy into a raving paranoiac. <laughs> and then he says later on, um, after he's had a few more sort of visitations from Men in Black and that sort of thing, he says, between the IRS, the phone company, Apple and his gang, and flying saucers, I was rapidly becoming a candidate for the funny farm. Yeah. Again, you know, he's constantly in his mind. Yeah, I mean, similar similar happens, going back to Robert Anton Wilson, like similar happens to him. And I think it kind of goes with the territory, doesn't it? It's like when that sort of thing happens, you start to question, it's, it's, like, it, it's like you're being gaslighted by, yeah, exactly. you know, the universe. Yeah. Um, and that's interesting because as well, as well as sort of the men in black, the flying saucers, Apple and the gang, the IRS, the phone company. I think there is evidence that he was actually just being fucked with by someone who was close to him. Well, there was that guy, wasn't there, who was... Uh, Gray Barker. Yeah, yeah, he was a dodgy guy. He's an interesting character. He was very close to Keel, particularly during the Mothman prophecies. So he actually investigated the same phenomena at the same time. I mean, there was a lot of people investigating it because there was a lot of weird stuff going on there. I mean, maybe we just talk a little bit about the Mothman. The Mothman is like a seven, eight, nine foot 
giant bird creature with glowing red eyes that was seen a lot in Point Pleasant. There was, I think, hundreds of cases of it within yeah. this period around 1967. Um, and that was combined with other phenomena, such as the dreams that people were having, which eventually predicted that Silver Bridge collapse. There was lights in the sky. UFO flap. There was the UFO flap. There was men in black turning up people's houses. There was lots of weird stuff happening. Now, Gray Barker was there investigating it at the same time as Keel. Gray Barker actually put out a, bri- a, uh, a book about the bridge collapse about five years before the Mathman prophecies. Um, Gray Barker, like, he was a charlatan, really. He, I, don't, I don't know if he ever really tried to hide that fact. Um, and all of his friends knew that. And I think Keel knew that a little bit, but they were also kind of friends. Um, he does turn up a lot in the Mothman prophecies. He had a mate called Jim Mosley, uh, Gray Barker. They were like partners in crime. And Jim Mosley ended up owning Source News, the, the publication. Um, and that basically gave Mosley and Barker control over a lot of the public perception of what ufos were around that time and allowed them to control the narrative a lot um so between them they made up a lot of shit and there's there's people who've who've come forwards um uh, there's um john c sherwood um wrote a um really good article which i'll link to in the show notes about how much shit gray barker made up and 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 basically he he made so Barker made Sherwood release a load of fictional stuff and um, articles and stuff when he was a young journalist. Um, it's sort of like, you know, to, to, to get him published, he basically said, make up a load of stuff and I'll publish it. Um, and he did it once or twice, I think. Uh, it's all explained in the article anyway. So even Mosley, after, after Greg Barker died, said like he was just making a lot of stuff up um so he he releases the silver bridge five years before mothman prophecies he has keel as a character in it and he has keel exhibiting loads of weird behavior he's basically a, a character when um barker sent through sherwood uh, a load of chapters of it barker actually just wrote in the notes which sherwood kept um i've deliberately stuck in fictional characters based roughly on cases i've heard about um and um Throughout the fictional chapters is like an undertone, which explains the sighting from a psychological viewpoint, though this is never stated, you know. So he's basically, he's making stuff up just to entertain, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously from Kiel's point of view, that's awful because he's fucking with him. But then you could look at it from the point of view of the bigger picture if you kind of looked at it in a very um, cold kind of non-empathetic towards Keel way in terms of the actual root or truth of it. It doesn't matter who started it or, you know, because the same caused the same thing to happen, which led to the book being written, which led to more people reading about it, which led to the ultra-terrestrial theory. I don't know. I'm just thinking about it kind of in that, in terms of yeah. like, you know, it's, it's, it's the same with, it's the same with Hellier, isn't it? Like it doesn't matter who sent the original email because yeah. in the end, they still go through that process. And that's just one way of I, looking at it. Yeah, I think it's definitely true that Keel released the Mothman prophecies as a way to put the record straight. 
And he actually treated Gray Barker really well in, in the Mothman prophecies. Um, even though I think behind the scenes, there was a lot of Keel was kind of onto Barker and what he was doing. Although it doesn't seem, I don't know why this is, it doesn't seem that he realizes that Gray Barker is doing a lot of the phone calls. When as if you look at actual historical evidence, it seems very likely because as well as being just a bit of a, a shit, <laughs> Greg Parker was also an alcoholic and or he drank a lot and yeah. and it's and it's drunk dialing throughout Mothman. Yeah, well that's it. And and, and through it, like Keel's like, and then this guy called up and he said he was Greg Barker, but I know the voice of Greg Barker and it wasn't quite him. And then when I spoke to Greg Parker the next day, he said he didn't remember calling me. And, it's and he like, was feeling very unwell. <laughs> yeah uh, I mean so in, in the actual book Mothman Prophecies Keel says of Barker the diehard fanatics who dominated Sorcerina during the early years were a humorless lot and Grey's mischievous wit baffled and arranged them at times it baffled me too so like he, he's obviously yeah. he obviously like isn't really sure where he's coming from a lot of the time but Keel really embodies that I want to believe yeah. philosophy. And that's one of the things that is, is completely like adorable about him when you read about it. Yeah. You know, he's so up for it all he's the time. He's very passionate, isn't he? And Yeah. And and the level of his field work is incredible. You know, the stuff he was doing, the places he was going, the things he was recording is, is, is really, really good snapshot of that time. But it's clear that it was Gray Barker who was fucking with Keel a lot during that time. And he was basically using Keel to create a mythology yeah well exactly like, like a puppet and i was gonna say like again reminds me a bit of hellier yeah yeah exactly and and, and I, I feel like gray barker was almost like information laundering he was passing weird stories so so barker was passing weird stories to keel and um using keel's reputation to get his own ideas out to people yeah and um, which is which is really manipulative um and so uh, there's there's a little poem actually that Gray Barker wrote in the late fifties, which is in that Sherwood article, which I'll link to. But basically, Barker knew he was a hoaxer. He didn't believe in UFOs, but he saw it as an opportunity to make money. Yeah. And this is this is a poem that he actually wrote. Is it in the form of a limerick? Because that would be great. Very very close. There was a man from Point um, Pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it, well, it goes like this. UFO is a bucket of shit. It's followers, perverts, monomaniacs, dipsomaniacs, artists of the fast buck. And while I sit here writing, while the shit drips down my face in great rivulets. <laughs> so, so on the one hand, he, he was releasing all this UFO stuff, you know, and, and they had control of, of a large part of the UFO narrative. And in private, he was writing crap like that. It's a great poem. I, it is a great poem. I, I mean, might, I mean I might, it, des- it deserves to be better known than what it I is. I might really. see if someone can make a little cross stitch of it with little <laughs> little UFOs going around the outside and then put it on my wall. <laughs> so, what is Keel's legacy then? Um, I mean, I, I think I think we need to talk about the little. I don't know a lot about it, but I think about where he sort of got to. Um in his in his later life really because yeah. he, he refuted the whole ultraterrestrial hypothesis in the end he said that he was meaning it figuratively and i think he was jaded by that point because we've seen at a similar time you know in the 90s valet doubled down on the ultraterrestrial hypothesis and became more explicit in what he believed 
Keel kind of moved away from it a bit, I think. I think he was tired, and I do think he was getting burnt out. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there wasn't the, the guy in the Mothman Prophecies who committed suicide as well, who was a... Um, I don't know if he was one of Keel's friends, but he was certainly one of his associates, and he, he was certainly associated with all the stuff, and he um, he ended up taking his own life. Um, and I think it's, you know, it sounds like Keel was in Chapel Perilous for a very long time, like a, a protracted yeah, period it, yeah. and a very intense form of Chapel Perilous. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm getting a bunch of synchronicities. It was like he was getting woken up every night by gaslighting MIBs and stuff, you know. Yeah, and it must have been like kind of mentally running a marathon every single day, trying to work out what's real and what's not when you're in that sort of state. Yeah, and it is like, I, do you know, I've never looked at it in this way before, but it is exactly the same as being in an abusive gaslighting relationship. It really is because yeah. what the the abusive person does is that they create a situation whereby you don't know what's real and what isn't. And over an extended period of time, it really starts to fuck with your head. It's like it's not just irritating, or it's like, did I say this? Did I think this? And and like, and for Keel, it was going on for years, and it was quite public. And you know, I, I think it wasn't just one one coming from one person either. So, oh no, I think no, he was involved. In, I, I believe he was involved in some sort of trickster phenomenon as well. But there was also Gray Barker, who we've just discussed at length. But there was also. He, he was, he, he I, I don't think he was gullible, but he just had that. He wanted to believe so much, you know, and he kept doing stuff like going to the military and, and, these, and asking to look at their records and stuff. And they let him and they were obviously showing him something which wasn't real, I think. Yeah. And so he was getting it from every angle, you know, there was people who were trying to confuse him, people who were trying to put him off, people who were using him as a sort of mirage man, you know, in, in that they were feeding him nonsense and bullshit so that he would, talk about it openly discredit himself and discredit the whole phenomena to put people off the track of what was actually going on and it makes you wonder if you think about the the whole idea of um like the the feedback loop and the whole idea of of what how what you do and how you interact with the phenomenon can feed back into it if he was being gaslighted by humans say by gray barker and by the military how did that feed back into because i i don't doubt that there was also you know, non-human stuff happening to him as well. And that was also probably fucking with him. Yeah. And it's like, you wonder though, was it always fucking with him or did it start fucking with him because of his mindset yeah. due to being fucked with by humans? So, you know, it, it almost starts out and it could go one way or another, but then because of him being fucked with by Barker, etc., it projects something out into whatever these entities are, which leads to the feedback loop you know sending him back sending some more fuckery back his way and then it kind of the, the the sort of paranoid state he's in again gets worse feeds back and it creates this like horrible loop which you know if gray barker had been a bit nicer to him then maybe he would have had some better experiences i know that sounds trite but like it could be yeah. the case i mean there's one thing that that brings us on to which is that keel is very explicit in saying don't trust these entities. Yeah, he basically the, said they were the devil or devils, didn't he? Yeah, they'll lie about who they are. They'll lie about what they want. They'll manipulate you. They'll trick you. Now, part of that is obviously his mindset. 
um, you know, and and the thing is that it happens to people who are the most open and the most sensitive and the ones who want to believe the most. That they'll they'll quickly become the most run down and and the most sort of uh, browbeaten, won't they? You know, because they're so open to it. You know, and, and he has that weird sort of openness to him. I feel, um, but Valet also hints at the fact that you probably shouldn't trust these entities as well. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of mischief and trickery going on in a lot of the stories that Relay tells, although he's a lot less explicit, of course, uh, such as his style than Keel. But that is one thing that they both have in common. Um, and Mothman prophecies ends on a real downer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he says after spending a lifetime in Egyptian tombs amongst the crumbling temples of India and the lamasseries of the Himalayas, endless nights in cemeteries, gravel pits and hilltops everywhere. I see much, and my childish sense of wonder remains unshaken. But Charles Fort's question always haunts me. If there is a universal mind, must it be sane? Yeah, it's haunting, and isn't it? And that last bit, it gives me chills. He, he's know. just like, everything we've said about him is there. You know, his childlike wonder is just being beaten constantly, and he's got that constant feeling of, like, believing in something else, but believing that what he's looking into is basically the abyss. It's dark. So I think it's probably best we leave it there for now because we've gone on long enough about this and we've only got about halfway through what we want to talk about. So we're going to make this into a two-part episode. So thank you very much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this one, there's more of the same to come. Oh, absolutely. But better. It's going to be better. because It's going to be twice as good. Twice as good. I would say. Twice, yeah, twice as good. I mean, I think this one was pretty good, but I think we can probably uh, double the goodness. It's like how much, how much more vase could it be? And the answer is none, none more vase. None more vase. Take care, everyone, and we'll speak to you soon. soon.